This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. The uh, Hamilton Police Services Board uh, gave a thumbs up to the uh, budget proposal for this year, for 2017, of course, uh, signing off on what is the lowest requested budget hike in almost two decades. Uh, the police board has agreed on a proposed 2.66 increase. Uh, I'm not so sure that's going to sit well with some people on city council. They also have to, of course, approve this. Joining us to talk about this, of course, is Lloyd Ferguson, who's uh, the counselor for Ward 12 up in Ancaster, but also the chair of the Police Services Board. Good morning, Lloyd. How are you doing today? I'm fine, Bill. Uh, let's uh, talk about the process on this. And, and if this seems a little redundant, a little bit like Groundhog Day, where we're going over stuff time and time again, i got to tell you, I'm sure you've seen this too, Lloyd. Uh, already today, I made this uh, the, the focus of my commentary at 810 this morning, but uh, even some of the online comments we've seen about this, people saying, why can't they control salaries and budgets? Maybe before we even start crunching numbers, let's go over that again, okay? Okay. For, uh, in essential services, um, who are arbitrated settlements in the event that we're not able to negotiate it, and first responders, fire, police, and uh, paramedics can go to arbitration. And arbitration as um, always, uh, what's the right word to use here, always told us we have to follow the comparators with other services that have negotiated agreements throughout the province. And uh, right now, uh, the difference between a on a first-class constable, we benchmark off them for everything. And on a first-class constable, the difference from number one to number seven is $170. And uh, a first-class constable just makes under the mid-90s right now. But if you go from all the big 12, which the um, uh, arbitrators will always look at, they'll, they'll, they'll listen to the arguments. And I saw it in the Niagara arbitration where they, um, they listened to the ability to pay. And this was not when Niagara was going through some tough times a few years ago, uh, particularly with the dollar at par at the time and tourism down significantly. Uh, they argued before the arbitrator that uh, they don't have the ability to pay. And the arbitrator acknowledged that, but they said, you just go to the taxpayers, and here's the settlements across the province, and here's what you're going to pay. And then, now, that's important to, re to remind our, our listeners and our taxpayer listeners our about taxpayers, this. yes. Because what the board invariably says when you go to arbitration is, of course you have the ability to pay. You can raise taxes. Correct. That's what they say. And they and really I don't care what the ramifications the of that are, because they don't have to pay. You know, it, it does, it's no skin off their nose. And we've been trying for decades to get, to get the province to direct their arbitrators to say, you must consider ability to pay. And, and but the province hasn't done that, and and the arbitrators, of course, are employed by the province, and uh, and, and so we're caught in this. And you know, look at I'd like to commit at the 1.8 percent, which is the guideline. And uh, you know, we spent weeks discussing this with the senior command about how we're going to keep this, the levels down. But uh, just a break, a quick breakdown. And by the way, a first class constable, from first to second, there's a one dollar difference in a first class constable. I think it's $3 between uh, us, and uh, it, it, which puts us in that number three spot, which is what our collective agreement says, at a first-class constable. And, and the lowest of the top seven is Halton at 94.773, so there's a difference of around $170. Uh, it's, it's very interesting when you look around the province how close everybody is, and that's the result of arbitrations that occurred over the years. So we have a multi-year collective agreement now, and the multi-year collective agreement uh, tells us that we'll keep them number three in the province. And uh, so the impact on salaries and wages is uh, 2.3% of the 2.66. And so clearly it's, it's driven uh, entirely by the, uh, the, the wages. The, the increase for all the other expenses is uh, 0 .4, or 0 0.4.
which takes us to the 2.66. And um, we did uh, uh, approve in the budget yesterday, which is, as you said, subject to council ratification because council makes the final decision on this. We did include one new staff member to uh, enhance our social navigator position, uh, our program with one new position. Of course, this is continuing to try to deal with the issue of mental health. And it was interesting doing the budget presentation last night. Since we put the social navigator in the first and the the, the, um, the, the other program, is just a, skates me, a rapid response unit in place where we have mental health workers in the cruisers, the admissions to uh, St. Joe's emergency is down by 70% which is a huge savings to healthcare. And, and that's exactly why the Lynn is funding this mental health worker to ride around with these seven officers responding to mental health calls. So they don't have that famous picture, the seven or eight police crews are sitting outside um, the uh, St. Joseph's Hospital Medical Center waiting to be have patients transferred. And, and so um, uh, that part is working and working well, and we have a duty, and it's not just a Hamilton issue, it's a North American issue, uh, dealing with this escalating problem of mental health. But you're going to hear, because we hear it every year from some of your council colleagues and certainly from some members in the in the community, Lloyd, that will say, well, you know, gee, the mental health stuff's down, well, let's, we don't need the program anymore, or crime is down in some areas, so we don't need to, to invest in as many officers. They, they don't seem to connect the dots here that the reason that 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 number is down is because of that program that you don't walk away from a program when you're doing that you don't deploy fewer officers when crime is down it's it's the fact that those officers are there that, that, that has caused the decrease and what, what exactly and is and you know uh, it, it there's also the social responsibility to not have our, our emergency rooms plugged full of, of, of patients that don't need to be there uh, having a mental health worker on site, the officer diffuses the situation, and the mental health worker assesses the, the patient and gets them directly to the, to the help they need. He, they don't have to be triaged through the uh, emergency rooms where we all know there's extensive lineup. So I thought that was quite an impressive statistic yesterday. We saw a 70% decline in the number of people with mental health issues. That over, and, and that's just from 2015 to 16. This program has been in place for a while. Uh, reduction in people being admitted to uh, the St. Joseph's mental health facility uh, uh, up in the mountain. So uh, th- that's the good news. Now, um, also, you know, we, we got our hands full at council trying to get the budget down to 1.8%. But um, we had uh, the city staff always carry the average of the last five years when they put the first budget together and present it to us. And so they had 3.2% in. So we're coming in at 2.66. So there will be a savings uh, uh, from the, the draft budget that's been prepared by, by uh, Mike Zagarek and, and his team uh, to city council for the operating budget. So, But we, we need to talk about these numbers again, and I just wanted to reiterate, and I know we seem to have this discussion every year, but I, you know, since we're still getting feedback from people suggesting that you guys have to get tighter with these guys and, 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 and you know, you got to hold the line, uh, and I'm not saying anybody's the bad guy here, okay? I'm not saying it's the police union. I'm not saying the association. I'm not saying it's – but it's the system that's in place, and it's not the system that you put there. It's the system the provincial government put there. And and even if you try to hold the line, and that's happened in the past where council has, has said, no, we're not going to go there, or, or that the negotiating committee has said, they go to arbitration, and these guys simply look at the numbers and saying those guys are getting – in Burlington, in Ottawa, in Toronto, are getting paid this – 
that's what you got to pay them here too. And it's it's a frustrating situation. It's a frustrating system, but it's the system we're stuck with. Well, and, and of course, don't think we weren't uh, tough on the senior command on the budget because we are coming with the lowest budget in 18 years. Uh, and, and so uh, we held their feet to the fire. But at the same time, our first responsibility is community safety. And, you know, a, a lot of people I've heard say that ninety four, $95,000 is a lot of money for an officer. And that's a first-class constable. That's not entry level. That's after you're fully qualified and been on the job for a few years. One thing I've learned as chair of this board, uh, they have a tough job. And it's getting tougher. Uh, you know, this whole, uh, we're, we're stripping them now of this ability to talk to people. Very, very limited on, on, the, on the street check side of it. Uh, you know, we, we, we see an officer now that's, that the independent police review director uh, directed us to lay a charge against them. And the hearing commenced yesterday, and they've set days to continue this. But that's a tough situation for an officer to be in. Yeah, we're... He's just trying to do his job, and then he gets himself in glue. And, uh, you know, the the, the public, uh, can, I've, what I've noticed recently, are, uh, can sometimes be disrespectful to police officers. They work shifts. They, they walk into very dangerous situations constantly. Um, and so I've learned to have a lot of respect for the frontline officers, for all, all police officers on the street, of trying to do their job. And uh, it's, it's getting a, to be a tougher and tougher job every year. Well, I mean, the role has changed. I mean, you know, the police, especially frontline officers right now, uh, I mean, they have to be trained in, in mental health issues, social service issues. They need to be a lot more empathetic, I think, to individuals. And, and, and there may be exceptions from time to time where that doesn't happen. But by and large, I think they, they have evolved, uh, as, as many other people have in this community as well. Uh, there's, there's some people that just plain have a, a, an anti-police bias for whatever reason. And, and we deal with that, and that's fine. Uh, you know, that's the, the opinion they have. But in all the years, as, as I mentioned in my commentary this morning, Lloyd, all the years I was on city council and, and the many, many years I've been doing talk radio here in this city, I, I don't think I've ever, if I have, it's been very rare, anybody say, yeah, we need fewer cops. Uh, because you want that public service safety, you want that protection. And, you know, when something goes bad, the first thing you do is you pick up the phone and call the police. Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. And the, and the number one complaint... Uh, uh, Kathy Bishop, my executive assistant, she says you shouldn't say it's number one because it looks like other complaints aren't important, and she's right. But uh, the, the number one complaint. The most I'm common sorry, complaint. The most common complaint I get in, in our office is speed. And uh, you know, the solution to that is to do enforcement, and uh, you need officers to do that enforcement, uh, to slow traffic down and protect school zones. And and so uh, here in Ancaster, we only have two beat officers. We've only had two beat officers for years. Our cop-to-pop ratio, which is uh, the number of police officers per 1,000 people, is way, way below the provincial average. But we simply don't have the capacity to add more. And we've, I've had that discussion repeatedly with, with the chief that, um, you know, they'd love to put uh, the statistics to show we should have 50 more officers on the road. We just don't have the resources to do that. In fact, keeping status quo, except for adding one additional person for the social navigator position, um, we're adding no new staff this year. And, um, and, and so I'm going to repeat it again. They have a tough job. Uh, they're expected to do more than their colleagues in other municipalities, and uh, I think we should be very appreciative of them for doing that. With that in mind, though, since there's a pattern that has developed here over the last number of years, especially with those that are working in essential services, is it realistic for city council to try to impose budget limitations on, on them? 
uh, to, to t- tell them to adhere to the same standard they're doing for public works or for, for any other department in the city? It's, it's, it seems yeah. to me as it's a, it's, it's a different animal altogether. Well, no, it, 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 I think it's, it's good to keep our, everyone's feet to the fire on cost because uh, I tell you, I'll put my council hat on for a minute. Every time I sit through a budget meeting, all the department heads and, and general managers are standing up and asking for more staff, more money. A police is critically important. Public safety is critically important. But quite frankly, so is clean water. And, and we've seen what's happening uh, throughout uh, not uh, Hamilton and, and area with these fires. And fire, uh, you know, we've got to make sure they're ready to go when they arrive on a site. And, and I think we should be proud of the fact, even though it was tragic what happened in these situations, fire is getting there in about three to four minutes. And, and which is a, a, a good response time. So we have a number of essential services that are very important, and I think it's fair for council to compare them, uh, you know, to try to hold the line because uh, uh, just about everyone thinks they pay too much in taxes, and it's hard to disagree with them. And everything's going up, whether it's hydro or taxes or, you know, we got the cap and trade. And by the way, that impacts our budget too because part of our operating cost is fuel, for all these cruisers, and of course, we're expecting another nickel to go on the cost of fuel uh, for these cruisers for the cap and trade uh, taxes being added. So everything is going up, and and that's the balancing act that us elected people have to always walk. And uh, I've talked about that a lot on on your show before, Bill. But we have to be, you know balance keeping costs down to making sure that we maintain in particular, essential services. And, uh, you know, we expect our roads to be plowed when we get storms like we're going to have tonight. And we expect those guys to come in and work overnight again to plow the streets so uh, everybody can get to work in the morning or wherever they have to go. Uh, but policing, I'm going to say it again, I'll say it for the last time, their job has got tougher. Uh, even in the four years I've been on the police services board with all the new restrictions coming down on them and what they can and can't do, and uh, and all the criticisms around, uh, you know, uh, lethal force and and so on. So we'll continue. I, I we all picked our jobs. Uh, you know, I knew what I was getting into, and I'm prepared to take the heat when it's necessary. But I'm also going to make sure we have a safe city. All right. What about the uh, criticism? And it's going to be level because it hasn't passed years too. That the police service board just rubber stamps whatever the chief asks. I, I, that's not true. <laughs> that's not true. I mean, if if we give everything the the chief asks, we'd have fifty. You you know what I'm there. talking about. There are some people in this community that seem to think that the members of the police services board are uh, less than diligent when it comes to the budget process, and they simply do whatever the the the, the, the police who whoever the police chief is. It's not level to this chief. It just in general, it just seems it's more of a criticism of the members of the board than it is about the the police themselves. And and fair enough, but that's not true. I I don't beat the table in public. I do it in private in his office or with the with the two deputies and the and the CFO and the chief. I, I don't like being aggressive in public. Um, I, I was trained a long time ago. You you compliment in public and criticize in private, and and so we put their feet to the fire. And uh, as you know, I'm known as a, the frugal one on council, and I use that same uh, style when I'm negotiating with the senior command on on budget increases. When does this go before city council? Uh, Mid-January. Uh, I think we're booked for around the 15th of January to come in and do the presentation. Other, the, the Investigative Services Building is the only capital project for this year, but it was approved earlier and has no impact on the uh, the levy because we're, uh, apart from using a lot of money in our reserves to, to pay uh, 
pay this down. We're taking out a debenture for $15 million, and that'll be funded from the mortgage that'll come off Station 30. So there's no capital request in our 27 You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. It uh, goes on, uh, the debate and discussion about uh, what's going to happen at the Gore Park and some of the buildings down around there. Uh, if you've been downtown lately, there has been some wonderful work that's gone on at Gore Park itself and uh, some fabulous uh, uh, refacing of some of the buildings, uh, especially on the south side of the Gore Park, except except for that one little block. You know the one I'm talking about, 18 to 22 King Street East. Uh, it's uh, back before the Heritage Committee, and they uh, decided yesterday to turn down a request for demolition which uh, came as a surprise to some people. Some people even surprised there was even an application for a demolition. Uh, let's go to the guy who's uh, been right in the middle of this, only because he's been trying to s- find some solutions to this over the last number of years now. Jason Fires, the counselor for Ward 2 of the downtown area, and uh, he joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show to try to bring some perspective on this. Counselor Fire, how are you doing today? Good morning, Bill. Sorry to hear about your perils on the QEW yesterday. Oh, wow. okay. well, five hours. Wicked. You know, I did that commute for many, many years when I was uh, yes. working in Toronto radio, and um, <laughs> it uh, it brought back some pretty ugly memories. But I don't think I've ever had one like that. Five hours just to get back from Toronto, and two hours to get from St. Mike's Hospital to the Gardner was just ridiculous. But plenty of time for a guy like you to think of all those big move interviews. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, it made me appreciate being in Hamilton again is what it did. It's, it's working here instead of there. Yes. Uh, but anyway, let's let's talk about downtown. Uh, as I say, uh, you and I have talked about this on numerous occasions. Now this is kind of like the you know the the Bill Murray Groundhog Day thing. It keeps coming back and back and back, and and it's getting to the point now, Jay, because of a lot of the other wonderful things that have been done with the park itself, with that program that the, that you guys are working on, and a lot of the buildings around there. This is kind of like the missing piece on the south side, isn't it? Oh yes, and and. Uh particularly now, and I'm glad you referenced it because Council's approved in the last four years that we've been deliberating what you rightly dub a little stretch of King Street, but of course it is a big deal, 18 to 28 King and the buildings owned by the consortium, but uh, we've put in millions of dollars in phase one and two in the pedestrianization of Gore Park, so very uh, appealing work. We finally got to our Gore Master Plan in the last uh, three, four years, and uh, going over like gangbusters is just a beautiful scene right now. Of course, well, I talked uh, to a lot of people uh, when we were down there doing our Remembrance Day broadcast, of course, right. in, on, the, on the 11th. And uh, a lot of folks that came up to the booth there as we were broadcasting had probably not been downtown for a whole lot, you know, from different parts of the city. Mm-hmm. But they came down for that. And, and they were, the common comment was, wow, this is great. I didn't know you guys were doing this. And I said, well, this is all part of it. It's not, it's not finished yet either. Uh, no, we got one more in front of the Royal Connaught, and uh, Mr. Spalacci is working closely with staff on that, and we can expect in the springtime, if not already, if you take a look, uh, we're already sort of working on that smaller piece, the point piece to the east, so not as uh, as uh, detailed uh, and certainly not as expensive, and with our partnership in the five-phase Royal Connaught development at that end, uh, uh, it should be short order before we're complete on the pedestrianization, but of course we still have on the private ownership side uh, um, a process to follow, and that's exactly what uh, it was yesterday. It was a part of the process, 
in answering uh, a June resolution, a unanimous resolution by council, of course, Bill, as you know, uh, to have staff come back and tell us what sort of process we need to uh, embark upon to get to the uh, the goals, wishes, and desires of many in our community, not all, of, obviously, uh, but many in our community to see um, 18 through to 28 uh, redeveloped uh, and restored. There's a combination of both. And so staff came back. We asked for that in April after a brief presentation uh, by representatives of the consortium that owns those properties. It was a six-slide slide show that showed the rede- redevelopment uh, and designation and retention of 18 to 22. So that's to the west, the two buildings to the west, and the redevelopment of uh, 24 to 28. So ultimately the demolition. Uh, they presented in April. Everybody seemed to like it and on council. We unanimously said, staff, come back and show us some definitive process. You and I have talked about not so definitive processes in the past that's led to historic arguments. We had some great compromises going, but we also had what Councillor Chad Collins calls the Christmas miracle, where on our final uh, uh, council in December a couple of years back, we had the emergency designation of all those properties, or the intent to designate, uh, trying to get back onto the compromise that you and I initially talked about, I think, uh, four years ago. So this was part I, I've of lost track yesterday. of the compromises here. Yeah, so I'm hopeful today that because it's it's back in uh, on the Bill Kelly show that we can get some clarity in the short few minutes that we have because really yesterday's heritage uh, municipal heritage committee uh, was one of the steps of many steps uh, toward uh, uh, achieving what uh, many of us desire, and that's obviously action on those four addresses right there in the heart of our city. Well, something's got to happen because, like I say, everything else is happening around it, and it, it's looking pretty darn good down there. Uh, aside from some things on the north side, but that's another discussion for another day. Yeah, but that's around the corner too, Bill. Uh, Aragon's uh, uh, property management of the Wright House, a beautifully restored building, as you know. Yep. Uh, the former department uh, store there at the corner of Houston and, and um, uh, King on the other side. But they've uh, picked up uh, most parcels between King and James, and they have some uh, big plans and dreams. And, and when there's a definitive uh, path on that, I'll certainly let you know, or, or hopefully those folks uh, from Aragon out of Vancouver will let you know as well. But I uh, I'm bullied by it, that's for sure. But in this case... Let's, let's, talk, let's talk about what's on the table here and what was being discussed yeah. yesterday. Because, like, like I said, you know, it's, it's a difficult sometimes, like, Jay, for some people to keep a, a track of exactly what, what is being comprom- pro- proposed, what the compromises are. Uh, there was an application for demolition. Uh, you've toured that building, I don't know how many times, and you've been through there. Mm-hmm. Uh, at one time, they just wanted to knock it down, and there were those proponents, many of them who showed up at this meeting, who want to keep everything. Just don't touch anything there. Just restore it. Uh, but there's a compromise that you seem, when we talked about this a few months ago, you seem pretty comfortable with. Yeah, and I think council is comfortable too, and you never want to speak for them, but certainly they've spoken for themselves in June, uh, sorry, in April following that presentation. We unanimously said, let's get to that. That six-slide slideshow. That so, what, okay, let's explain exactly what that is. Okay, well, there's a, a, a five-story multiple dwelling development would uh, go in place of the two buildings that the consortium seeks to uh, 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 redevelop. That's 24 to 28, and that's on the east side. So it's right next door to the current 
gap that we see now between Houston and James on the on the south side of King Street. So a five-story new multiple dwelling de- uh, uh, built by uh, award-winning architect David Premi, who was at the meeting yesterday speaking on behalf of the consortium. Uh, so, so that would be right next door to the other two properties that in this process, the applicants, the consortium, agrees to designate and retain and, and fix up to a great extent, obviously, Now, what will that look like? Because are the facades going to stay? Current objection to be uh, from council currently uh, with our intent to designate, they would build a penthouse on top, and that would be the first phase of a three-phase development. And the big part of this process, Bill, which you and I weren't talking about. Uh, some four years ago on ML, and you were the first to, to cover this, and, and regularly I'm glad that you continue to seek updates because I know many people are interested. Uh, the process um, uh, sees, uh, uh, the application process is, is I don't want to say binding, but it sets out a path that uh, uh, has a lot of checks and balances along the way that ultimately leads to um, not just talk anymore, but um, um, uh, sort of a a more expeditious approach to making something happen on all four of these parcels. And yesterday was one. From yesterday, well, from Municipal Heritage Committee, like everything they look at, following their 5-4 vote uh, that wasn't in support of a staff staff report that said, yes, let's, let's go at what I've spoken to, a, you know, the designation and retention of 18 to 22, the redevelopment of 24 to 28. They said five to four, no. The two councillors on the board said yes to the staff report. But from there, like every other application or agenda item for Municipal Heritage Committee, it comes to Planning Committee. And that Planning Committee is January 17th. If Planning Committee uh, uh, votes to maybe go in the direction or maintain the consistency of late uh, in just getting stuff done there, uh, then that'll go to council January 25th. And once that's all through, and in other words, going against the 5-4 vote from yesterday's Municipal Heritage Committee, uh, then they go to site plan control, then they go to design review, development review, site plan approval comes after that, and that's when we lift the the um, the current uh, four uh, address intent to designate on two of those properties, the redevelopment piece, 24 to 28. They get their demolition permit only after all of those steps are taken, and then the building permit, and away you go. All right, but like I got a, a couple of questions about this now, because sure. some of the concerns that have been raised over the years about doing anything in the way of demolition of these properties was, well, whatever they're going to build, it's going to be incongruous with the rest of the streetscape. It's going to look like hell. Nobody wants to look at something like that. How did they address that? Well, I wish I could paint a picture of the Premi design, but I, I personally... Well, that's involved. an interesting aspect of this, too, because David Premi has well, a reputation, as you mentioned, as, a, as a, an outstanding architect, but also as, as a strong advocate for heritage buildings. Mm-hmm. Oh, very much so. And it's, it's so to David Blanchard and others, as we've talked about sure. in the past. I mean, oh, yeah. the same people who three out of four corners of Maine and James, they're directly responsible for, and there's a wonderful restored heritage in these four places. Uh, uh, Mr. Blanchard himself was part of the consortium uh, on these properties, owns a heritage home. So there, there's no no doubt, like Leuna, with Leuna Station, uh, putting back the facade as we speak now on the Thomas Building, uh, where we're going to see a student tower. Uh, they they also have a, a, a history of, uh, of making it work, making heritage work where applicable. So, so how does how does David Premi design something? Is is it, are they maintaining the facade? Is that is that the the, uh, the angle here? 
they maintain the facades on the two to the right and then a completely new build on the left or the east side. So the redevelopment of 2428 uh, is something that architecturally, I mean, Dave can speak to this much more profoundly sure, and profoundly sure. than I, meets and works uh, well with, it, uh, it uh, blends nicely with the preserved two buildings, the designated and retained buildings. Uh, on 18 to 22. So, so the architect isn't just looking at the new piece. He's looking at the new piece working well and blending well with the four addresses we're talking about. Because we've done that in other parts of the city too. Uh, for instance, in Ancaster, I mean, there've been some new developments up there on Wilson Street. Uh, mm-hmm. But they were told at that time by the planning committee that uh, if you want to build something up there, it's got to look like the rest of the street. Uh, it, it can't stick out. And there was a Tim Hortons, a very famous discussion that we had years ago. I think it's a Starbucks now because uh, Timmy's moved down the street. But they wanted to build their typical Tim Hortons store, and they said, no, you can't do that. So you're, you're applying that, that same attitude here. Oh, yeah, and I, and I mentioned one of the steps along the way yesterday was just one. Next, it's planning committee looking at the municipal heritage report. If planning uh, committee goes against that 5-4 vote to retain all of the buildings, then it goes January 25th to council. Then... Site plan control, but also the one to note is the design review. To, to what you're talking about, a design review panel is something um, not unique to a lot of cities in Canada. Not a lot of cities have it. As part of the uh, commenting uh, process, a bunch of architects sitting in a room taking a look at how well David Premi's work uh, blends and fits and meets exactly what you're talking about, the character of that particular area. So that's part of these steps that council unanimously asked for back in April and received in June. All right, where's what's the process now? As I say, this has to go to city council, like all subcommittee reports do. Right. Uh, city council will vote on this. Uh, mm-hmm. if, if, for instance, uh, the Heritage Committee, well, and, and a number of the people have made presentations, if they don't like the way the council votes, do, can they appeal this, or is that over at that stage? Well, uh, that's a good question, actually. I, they, they, they may have an opportunity through the um, uh, province and the commenting body uh, on all things heritage through the province, and I always forget the name and the acronym, but um, where you have an opportunity to appeal on any development is through um, the planning committee on the new build. So uh, one thing's for sure, if they don't like the uh, design, that you can go to the Ontario Municipal Board and, and protest that particular aspect. But can you appeal um, the, the, the steps and the process taken so far? Far, I they they certainly delegated and delegated well. I might add, these folks are. This is Diane Dent and, uh, and Nicholas Cavallon, people I greatly respect and learned a lot from in the past. Uh, they may not agree in this case with my compromise, but everything from 150 Main to the emergency designation of uh, one St. James Place, you'll recall that one over by St. Joe's Hospital. Uh, almost a thousand buildings on the on the buildings of uh, historical heritage of interest. Uh, some of the stuff that I've worked on uh, with respect to maintaining heritage over the course of the last five or six years, Bill, I, I think we do agree on on this particular compromise. We do not. I would not be surprised if given, let me answer your question, if given the opportunity to appeal to a higher authority, if, it's, it, if it exists, and I'm sorry I don't have the answer, I'm sure that they will, they are steadfast in their approach to maintaining not only the facades on these all four addresses, but the entire buildings. This is not unlike the debate that went on about the, uh, the church across the road from the YMCA on James Street. Uh, where, where part of the facade is going to be maintained, but there's going to be a totally different structure that's going to be in behind that. Now, I, I saw this years ago in, in downtown Halifax, where they've done this with a couple of different stretches, and, and it worked there. 
Uh, and I know, I know that there were some heritage advocates that are opposed to that church project on James Street, uh, and therefore I'm sure they're still going to be opposed to this one here. But I, I, I guess the other side of this coin, the reason I, I keep bringing this up is I think people are getting tired of this debate. I mean, do something with those properties. I mean, it looks like hell right now with you know the, the, the facades all boarded up right now, especially considering all the other wonderful things that are going on downtown. I can guarantee you people are tired of this debate. And the large majority of people I can confidently say, and I don't normally do this because I don't have any factual or statistical matrix uh, to, to, to definitively say it, but the large bulk of, of folks would like to see something happen very soon. And that's why council unanimously asked for this process to take place uh, back in April following the presentation. There's a, a, I hear it all the time, you know, and especially since we've put our money where our mouths are and used taxpayers' dollars to pr- pr- produce, I think, what is widely held as good pedestrianization, uh, Gore Master Plan uh, implementations on uh, from James all the way down to John. And now it's time to work collaboratively and I'm back on, on the board with this compromise to get the right on board. And they are on board, and I can tell you they are very much as interested in moving as expeditiously as possible as we are, Bill. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Mayor Town Hall right now, uh, Burlington Mayor Rick Goldwing is with us in studio uh, to talk about things Burlington and uh, and maybe outside of that as well. If you got a question, a comment for the mayor of the city of Burlington, uh, you can reach us at 905-645-3221, 645-3221. Star 9900 is a toll-free number for you. Uh, Kelly at 900chml.com on email and, of course, on Twitter at chmlbillkelly. We'll go to your questions and comments for uh, Burlington Mayor Rick Goldwing in uh, just a little while. How are you doing? I'm doing well. A little tired this week, Bill, but looking forward to well, some time guys, off. Yeah, got a lot of business. Well, the, the well, council's all trying to cram everything right now so they can have a little bit of time off over the holidays of Christmas well, season. Well, exactly. I mean, this week between the region and the city, we had like 13 or 14 hours of committee meetings, uh, which is a lot for Burlington. It may not be a lot for Hamilton after reading the paper the other day, but it's certainly a lot for uh, Burlington. And Tuesday night, we went to 11 o'clock, had some... Uh, had a controversial development application we were dealing with. And uh, so, yeah, it's been a busy week. On that topic, I want to ask you about, there's a couple of different things that are going on in Hamilton Council. I want to ask how you guys deal with it in Burlington. Uh, one, of, of course, are, is is the councillors themselves. And, and there was, a, I'm sure you read the, the articles, we certainly talked about it on the radio show here, uh, about councillors going on and on and on and on and on. And Councillor A will say something, and then it's Councillor B's turn, and then Councillor A wants to respond to Councillor A, and it goes back and forth. And uh, everybody wants to have the last word, right? Pretty much. Everybody wants to have pretty the last much, word. Pretty much, yeah. Uh, how do you control that? Well, I, I think one of the things that we have done recently— You've got a smaller council we, there. we have a smaller council, but but you know, still we have a lot of people who want to have the last word. Uh, so one of the things we've done recently is we've looked at our procedural bylaw, and a, a subcommittee of, of the seven of us looked at our strategic— our, our, procedural bylaw and recommended some changes, and one of them was very controversial with our community. But there were some other good ones there, and one of them ones was uh, when you're asking questions of delegations, uh, you get a maximum of two questions at a time, at a time, and then you let somebody else ask some questions. So the chair- I like that. So basically, you can't have one person dominating questioning of one delegation. So how it would work is, the chair of the committee would say, who's got questions? Okay, 
you're allowed two questions at a time. If you don't have any questions, you move on to the next person. So there may be a second round of questions. And so, you know, there's an opportunity to ask further questions, just only two at a time. And the same thing when they're asking staff questions, I believe it's three questions at a time for staff. And then at the end of our, at the end of the council meetings, we have uh, uh, non-debatable comments can be made. And <laughs> what happens is, is that uh, people talk about a lot of different things. And I always joke, I say, we were looking for comments, not speeches. And, uh, but sometimes, <laughs> so what we, anyway, what the strategic, what the, you sorry, have procedural those, bylaw. You have to define those two things for them from time to time? So, sometimes, but the, what the procedural bylaw has stated now in our revisions is that we're allowed to uh, speak for two minutes at the end of a council meeting, and we can either talk talk for two minutes about one particular community event that's coming up that we want, we want people to make note of, or we... We have three. We can only talk about three uh, items at once. So, we've we've done some things to to minimize the discussion. And when we're talking about issues, when we're talking about any particular vote that's going on, each of us are only allowed to speak for five minutes, twice. So, if I speak for five minutes, one of my colleagues speaks for five minutes, I can speak for another five minutes to respond to whatever they said, and then that's it. So you're only allowed to speak for five minutes, twice now, on any given item. Did they adhere to that? Well, we track it. Yeah. So that we have the clerk that's pim- timing people. So, yeah, absolutely. Because they, I, I was relating back, and this was way back when I was on council, they did the renovations to the city hall back in those days, around 2000 or 2001, I think it was. And they said, we got this fabulous new innovation, too, with these microphones. They shut off after five minutes. So, councillors, you got five minutes and that's it. Well, all they do is the mic goes off. They just reach over and push it, turn it on again, yeah. and, and on and on <laughs> and on and on, and they go. Yeah. You know, the, the, the soliloquies that come out of there are, the, all the time are ridiculous. But it sounds like you've got some pretty hard and fast rules there. Yeah. We, had, we had some interesting discussion, though, recently because the subcommittee recommended that we reduce delegation Yeah, that's time. the other point I was going to ask yeah, you about because that's the other contentious point. That's, that's one thing about the elected officials. Right. But, you know, because they'll see, for instance, the members of the public will see the elected officials going on and on and on. And then they get in there and say, you only got a couple of minutes. That's it. You know, exactly. you got to stick to that. And they figure, wait a sec, there's a double standard. Yeah. So what's the policy in Burlington when it comes to delegation? So members of the public that want to talk. So we have, you know, committee meetings and we have council meetings and the committee decisions go to council for, for ratification. And at council, each delegation is allowed to speak for up to five minutes on new information. So if they delegated at the committee meeting leading up to the council meeting, um, they, can't re- they can't delegate again at council with the same information. At the committee meeting, uh, it has been 10 minutes for some time. It hasn't changed. We talked about changing it. At least some people did. And uh, we kept it at 10 minutes. There was a recommendation from the subcommittee to reduce it from 10 minutes to 5 minutes. Uh, but the majority of us overrid- overrode that uh, recommendation, and we kept it at 10 minutes. I was never on for the 5 minutes. Uh, you know, when we're having delegations, we had 22 or 23 delegations on Tuesday night. It's really up to the chair to move things along. And certainly if it's a busy council meeting, we have lots of delegations. I encourage people to, to not take five minutes, so they don't need to speak for five minutes, to use whatever time they need to, to, to state their case. But sometimes when you speak too long, that's not a good thing either. So, you know, be concise, be clear what the points you want to make, and then move on. I want to get into your budget process because I know that's front and center for the, for the Burlington Council for uh, the next couple of weeks anyway, and months probably. Uh, but before I do that, something in a more macro sense. Uh, a lot of controversy in Toronto with uh, Toronto Mayor John Tory uh, proposing road tolls on the Gardner and the Don Valley Parkway. Now, right off the bat, I'm not, Burlington Council is not entertaining the idea. 
But uh, it's fascinating to see the way the debate is starting to roll out right now and maybe the change of public attitude. Uh, there, there are some people that are outraged by this, that, they, you know, they, hey, we pay for those roads already. We don't we should have to pay for them again. But there also is a segment of the population that are saying, yeah, that kind of makes sense. I, I, you know, councils are faced with a dilemma right now, aren't they, Mr. Mayor? Basically, to raise revenue, and that was the argument that Mayor Tory used. Uh, you know, the, yes, there's the environmental thing, but he says we need the cash. And it's really either property taxes or user fees. That's Those are the only major tools that the city has. You know, well, Toronto is very fortunate that there is a City of Toronto Act, and they are treated yeah. special. They're treated very special by the province of Ontario, that they have more authority to generate revenue from different sources than the rest of us. The rest of us really only have property taxes and user fees. We get a bit of, uh, um, of uh, revenue from our federal and provincial governments, and certainly you know, with regard to public health and with regard to social services, we get a good chunk. Uh, but but by and large, uh, the tool that municipalities have is the property tax and, and user fees, where the city of Toronto has a, a lot more tools, as evidenced by uh, uh, Mayor Tory's uh, request to have council consider taking a look at uh, road tools. I don't have any trouble with his approach. I mean, he has a challenge to, uh, to fulfill the... Uh, uh, all the different issues that they have at the city of Toronto, including transit. And you want to generate some revenue to pay for increased transit. And we were just talking about the traffic in Toronto before we went on air. Yeah. And obviously they need to invest more, more in transit. So here's another mechanism uh, to pay for it. And also it, it forces people to think about how they drive and are there other options that may be more desirable in light of a road tool uh, with regard to, to public transit. So I don't have any trouble. Uh, and I'm very supportive of his approach on this. Uh, there were some of my fellow mayors and chairs to the east of uh, Toronto that weren't very happy. Um, but I look at it as a perfectly appropriate approach uh, to generate revenue uh, for the city of Toronto and to help pay for transit. Uh, transit's expensive, and, and uh, you need additional sources of revenue. So good for the Toronto Council for looking at it. Uh, I mean, it's, 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 it's a de facto user fee. I mean, but, but we do that in municipal politics anyway, don't we? I mean, well, we, we have all user pay. fees on transit. We don't have free transit. Yeah. People pay to take... Uh, pay, people pay to take the bus. Uh, people uh, pay uh, to rent a sport field. People well, sure, pay yeah. to rent I mean, an arena. I mean, my property taxes pay to build that arena, but if I want to use it and rent an hour, I got to pay for it. Exactly, exactly. So it, 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 it's similar, and it's two dollars. It's, it's two dollars each time. Um, and it'd be interesting to see how they define it and how it works out and how they collect the money. And the administration will be a challenge to, to figure out. But they got the model of the four hundred seven to take a look at. Um, but no, I, I, I support it. You know, the, the challenge we have in Ontario, as I mentioned, is we are primarily, the, all of us, except for Toronto, are reliant on property taxes. And AMO, the Association of Municipalities of Ontario, have done an analysis of all the municipalities across, uh, across Ontario. And looking at the responsibilities we have with regard to maintaining our existing, existing budgets and the existing services we provide, as well as uh, filling in the infrastructure gap, which is significant for, for many cities, including Hamilton and Burlington. So to do that across the province of Ontario, we need an 8.5% tax rate, average tax rate increase for the next 10 years, just to keep the, the, the doors open and to deal with the infrastructure gap. Uh, and that's not sustainable. That is not fair to ask our property taxes. So having additional sources of revenue for municipalities makes a lot of sense. It's it's an ongoing discussion and it's an ongoing debate. I mean, nobody wants to pay more for anything. I mean, that's that's almost human nature, I guess. But uh, you have to also look at the economic realities. And it's not just Toronto or Burlington or Hamilton. I mean, every city's facing the same problem now. 
Oh, exactly. I mean, it, it is it is really across Canada. I mean, as far as the issue is maintaining the the viability and fiscal sustainability of cities. And when I was in Ottawa in April with all the big city mayors of Ontario, we actually had a meeting with the prime minister. And he did raise the point. He did say, you know what? I mean, the British North America Act, our constitution is almost 150 years of age. And it really defines a relationship between the federal and provincial uh, uh, governments that's 150 years old. And municipalities are treated like a, a creation of the province. And as far as the structure, as far as the, the fees and the, and the property taxes uh, that generate revenue for cities, it's a 150-year-old construct. And we need to take a hard look at it. Well, yeah, because back when they wrote this thing up the first place, I think it was 80% of the people in Canada lived in rural areas. And now, 80, now it's flipped. It, yeah, it's, it's flipped, flipped now. They're all in urban areas, and that's got to be done. But I, I, I get the sense, though, that there's a – maybe not appetite, but that there's a, a, an understanding now that wasn't there 10, 15 years ago about things like this. And you used the 407 as an example a couple of minutes ago, and you remember – because that goes right through the city, through Burlington – uh, when that road opened, hardly anybody used it. I mean, you know, there's few and far between that you know there's another car on the road if you were going on there. It's a very busy highway now. So people have, I guess, accepted the fact that, yeah, we'll pay a toll for the convenience of driving on that road. People will pay a premium to right to have that convenience. And it's a must say, I, you know, I use it many, many times. It's a much more uh, leisurely drive, if that's a way to describe it, than it is using uh, the QEW uh, 401 or 427, any of those roads for that matter. So we'll see. And, and, and again, it's not because Hamilton or Burlington are thinking of doing this right now, but uh, it's an interesting well, right debate. Right now, we don't have the authority to do it. Yeah. So we really don't have the authority to do it. But as far as the issue of, of generating additional revenue for uh, municipalities, that is something that AMO has been working on for some time. Uh, they've hired Nick Nanos to do some research, a pollster to do some research. And we found out that uh, um, majority of people surveyed are willing to look at a different revenue tools for municipalities if we're going to use it for infrastructure. So stay tuned. There'll be more discussion on this item in 2017. As I was uh, crawling along the Queen Elizabeth Way to get home last night, uh, I noticed on all the overpasses, Walker, Appleby, and, and, and Guelph Line, uh, your plows going up and down there trying to keep everything clean. Uh, just a quick uh, tweet here from Casey says, uh, could you please ask uh, the mayor, uh, what is the ratio of full-time employees to contractors for the winter operations in Burlington? That's a good question. I'd be I'd be completely guessing. I don't mind guessing here, but I d- I do believe we're about fifty to sixty percent uh, full time staff and about forty percent contracted. But that's that's a guess, and I think it's a reasonably educated guess. But I'm not anywhere near one hundred percent. Yeah, I, I think if, if I recall from Hamilton, I think it's fifty fifty. But I, I I'm not so sure about that. But it's it's close anyway. Yes, I believe it is close. And that, the the rationale for that basically is that uh, let's face it, a lot of the equipment there, the city can't really afford to keep all the time. I mean, the road graders exactly. and things like that. You know, those are private contractors. They're building roads in the win- in the summer and cleaning snow in the winter. It'd be ridiculous for you guys to buy stuff like that. No, I mean, with the demand for, for winter control services, uh, in the, and obviously in the wintertime, uh, we, couldn't, we couldn't keep enough people on full-time and wouldn't have enough equipment uh, and do it in a uh, reasonably fair way and, and uh, um, cheap way. Uh, no, we need our contractors to help us with this. So there's a, there's always going to be, I, I think, that, that blended, I, I guess, approach to this with a, a, a lot of cities anyway, uh, simply because of that control. Uh, how did you guys make out with that yesterday, with the winter clearing? The highways were, were awful. I, I think we did fairly well. I mean, that's my sense we did fairly well. I mean, you're obviously not going to uh, please 100, 
100% of the people all the time when you, with regard to winter control, but I think we did uh, we did fairly well. Well, those um, are the calls you get into the mayor's office, aren't they? I mean, everybody oh, yeah. everybody thinks that their street's the last one that's going to get plowed. Yeah. Yeah, no, exactly, exactly. We have a standard, though, within 24 hours of the snowfall stopping, uh, we're supposed to have all the streets cleaned, and we need to have a certain number of centimeters of snow before we go onto local roads. We have different standards for the collector roads and the major arterial roads, and certainly the major arterial roads were the areas that we're focused on. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Canada may be known for its landscapes and friendly people, but beneath the surface lies a darker side of crime, history, and the paranormal. Since 2017, the award-winning Dark Poutine podcast has explored the shadowy corners of the Great White North and beyond, delivering chilling tales from a uniquely Canadian perspective. Hosted by Mike Brown and Matthew Stockton with over 300 episodes and fresh releases every Monday, Dark Poutine is your weekly ticket to the creepier side of Canada. Listen to Dark Poutine on Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.